Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series on Psalms for the Journey. Today, looking at Psalms 128, 129, 130, and 131. And now, here's Jim. We're smaller in numbers this morning. I guess everybody with the last hurrah of the long weekend before fall officially starts wants to get in those last camping days. But uh, welcome to everybody who's here. Well, we continue this week with the Psalms of Ascent, or Songs of Ascent, as they are also known. Our five-week series titled Psalms for the Journey. As we've been learning that although the Bible does not definitively say so, It's believed that these psalms were a group of psalms that were sung by pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem as they traveled for probably three feasts, at least during the year, that God commanded all men to attend, as Dave uh, uh, pointed out last week in his message. It's important that we keep in mind that as we study these psalms, that the pilgrims who were singing them were on a journey, a journey to remember God's deliverance and his provision for their lives, And these psalms reflect that journey. But what is a journey? In our culture today, the word journey can be used in uh, several different ways for different kinds of trips. The first type of journey that we can go on is a journey of destination. This is a physical journey. Someone travels for work or to see a family member or visit a friend. Or perhaps a person is taking the journey of a lifetime to a destination they've always dreamed of going to. A second type of journey that someone can take is to journey with someone. Some people have traveling companions that they like to journey with when they go on a trip. For me, my traveling companion is my wife, Carol. I wouldn't dream of going on a trip without her. Not only can you physically travel with somebody with a traveling companion, but you can also travel with someone as they travel through life. The first, term that I, the first time I heard this term was from Ron Paget when he coined the term a journey mate. That is, someone you can connect with on a level that is so close that you share each other's struggles and victories and you're there for each other throughout their journey no matter what. Well, a third type of journey that you can go on is an emotional journey. And like the second one, this type of journey may include some travel destinations or you may hardly travel at all. Although some people go to the amusement park for this journey, they're said to be on an emotional roller coaster with the highs and lows of their life. For others, their emotional journey can be a life-changing event that takes them in a direction that they never thought they would ever be going, whether in a good way or bad. Well, I propose that the people traveling to Jerusalem would have been experiencing all three types of journeys. They were obviously on a physical journey as they traveled up the road to Jerusalem, and they would have been traveling with someone, either family or companions, as it was much safer to travel together in that time. And no doubt, uh, the festivals they traveled for (coughs) would have reminded them (coughs) of the commitments that God made to the Israelites and the commitments that the Israelites were supposed to make to God, and all the emotions that went along with the festivals that they would have been traveling for. Well, let's tag along with these pilgrims as they continue to Zion or Jerusalem, as we more commonly know it today. 
And since it's a long walk from Timmins to Jerusalem, especially across the Atlantic Ocean, and since I've had a lifelong affection for aircraft, and we are, after all, in the 21st century, let's take a more modern-day mode of transportation and go by air this morning. Now, we can't actually fly from Timmins to Jerusalem because there's no airport in Jerusalem, so we'll have to get off at Tel Aviv, and perhaps David Hook uh, next week, when he finishes off this series, can take us on that last walk from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So, ladies and gentlemen, please ensure your seats are in the upright position. Your table trays are safely stowed in front of you. Kindly place all your carry-on baggage under the seat in front of you and buckle your seat belts as we prepare for takeoff. Well, our first uh, leg of the journey this morning that we're on is Psalm 128, which we can subtitle, Joy for Those Who Follow God's Ways. And since the tower has cleared us for takeoff, let's advance the throttles, pull back on the yoke, and read Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, and may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Well, the author of this psalm is anonymous, and he starts off with a declaration that for those who fear the Lord, blessings and prosperity will be yours. Now, I think it's important that we review what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord that this psalmist would have been referring to is not a fear of God. The Bible contains many passages, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, that speak of God as our protector or defender, our provider, our physician, the one who will discipline us as well as comfort us. God is not a God that for those who love and trust him need to be afraid of, the way that you are afraid of someone who is out to destroy you. For myself, I view the term fear the Lord as a part of a relationship between a loving father and his son. I loved my earthly father, and as I was growing up and into my adult years, it meant a lot to me to have his approval. And when I screwed up and disappointed, me, disappointed him, it saddened me. And for those times that I screwed up and uh, I needed some discipline in my life, well, my father was there with a loving hand to uh, guide me in the direction that I needed to go. But I never feared for my safety when I was with my dad. And I count that a great blessing because I know that's not always the case in a lot of households this day. <clears throat> well, one definition that I found for fear of the Lord is to have a deep respect, reverence, and awe for God's power and authority. Rather than causing someone to be afraid of God, a proper fear of the Lord leads one to love him. And in practical terms, God sits in judgment on my sin. But because of his grace, he forgives the repentant heart. But we must also remember that it is the fear of the Lord that reminds us that God will discipline those who love, who stray from the path that he would have us on. And sometimes, though that discipline is severe, it's always with the intent of bringing us back into a right relationship with God. A healthy fear of the Lord and his discipline serves us as a reminder of the consequences of sin. And for those who refuse to put their trust in God, who arrogantly refuse to do so, well, his wrath should be something that they are afraid of. 
Now, if before we boarded our flight on our way to uh, Jerusalem this morning, I told you that I overheard the pilots talking amongst themselves, saying how much they were both afraid of flying, I think we would both be looking for a different flight to take. But I count it, I count, count it as a great security if I were to hear those same pilots talking about how they were scared to death to fly into an active thunderstorm because they know the uh, danger it puts myself in as well as themselves. You see, fear can be a healthy emotion if it's the right kind of fear. The psalmist in 100, Psalm 128 doesn't just express the need to fear the Lord, but he goes on to state the benefits of fearing the Lord. Blessings and prosperity await for those who walk in the ways of the Lord. But if you think walking in God's ways is a quick way to become rich, well, you need to rethink your definition of prosperity. At times, God did choose to bless people with wealth, and there are examples of that in the Bible, namely in the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Joseph. You can come up with your own list. All are examples of who God blessed in some way with material wealth. In the New Testament, though, it's a lot harder to find such examples. In fact, those who followed Jesus Christ and went on to become servants that God used to get the um, the New Testament church established, they died without prosperity. That is, prosperity as defined by North Americans. The prosperity gospel that is preached in too many churches in North America professes that if you just have enough faith and you plant your seed money, usually in the form of a donation to the preacher's charitable organization, that God will grant you a wonderful job, a beautiful spouse, a big house and an even bigger bank account. That's just plain unbiblical. And it preys on those who can ill afford to part with their finances in order to line the pockets of such preachers. But the word prosperity and its derivatives are used 85 times in the Bible. 84 of that 85 times are in the Old Testament. And the one time that it's used in the New Testament is in reference to the nation of Israel when they were in Egypt prior to their enslavement. On the other hand, the word blessings and its derivatives add up to 428, many of them occurring in the New Testament as well as the Old. So what would the psalmist have been referring to when he said, you will eat the fruit of your labor, blessings and prosperity will be yours. Here the psalmist goes on to express how those who fear the Lord and follow his ways will enjoy the fruit of his labor. He will eat and not be hungry. In other words, he will enjoy the prosperity of contentment as well as he will enjoy the blessing and prosperity of family. Now, it's easy to count it a blessing when your family is all you expect or hope the family would be. But when times are tough and your family is struggling in some way, that's often when a person's love for their children or grandchildren is the strongest. And as we travel through the adversity, God is there with us to remind us how much more a blessing a family will be when we come out the other side of those trials. At times, God does bless people in material ways. But if your idea is to use God as your investment banker, your attitude is just qualified, as, has just disqualified you from such consideration. For as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. I've never come across an example in the New Testament of a 
disciple or an apostle of Jesus Christ that became rich as a reward or payment for their faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps I missed it, and if I did, I welcome you to show me afterwards, but I've never found one. As a servant for God, the Apostle Paul lived anything but a life of the rich and famous. In fact, he sacrificed much for the gospel, and so did the other apostles. And for me, this is the proof, this is the evidence of how much the gospel of Jesus Christ changed their lives. When someone will go through what they did and not be looking for any reward or gain, that's evidence that they really believed. Jesus really changed. And he does that today as well. But yet God does not say it's a sin to be wealthy. When it comes to wealth, I believe we can look at it at least in part to the parable of the talents to help us understand what prosperity is. See, this is a parable of faithfulness and how we can use what God has entrusted us with as servants in his kingdom. One thing that God will entrust Christians with is wealth. And the more those Christians prove their faithfulness to God with their wealth, the more God may choose to bless them with. A healthy view of wealth from a Christian perspective is to remember that what we have doesn't actually belong to us. It's merely unloaned to us. It all belongs to God. I mean, the governments have adopted this policy to the hilt at tax time. Just think it. It doesn't belong to you. That tax money that you give to the government, it doesn't belong to you to start with. Well, in fact, none of it belongs to us. It all belongs to God. And in Canada, all of us are considered rich by the world standard. We only need to look to countries like Afghanistan today to see just how rich we are and blessed in the country that we live in. And God expects us not to bury what he has blessed us with or to hoard it all for ourselves, but he expects us to be generous with it as well. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that. That's a matter between yourself and God. I know this is a simplified look at wealth and we can spend a great deal, great deal more time on it, but our time is limited today. But there are blessings and prosperity that await all Christians that the world can't understand. The blessing of God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant when we stand before him, should be more than enough motivation to walk in the ways of God, as the psalmist put it. See, this type of blessing or prosperity is foreign to the world. The philosophy of the world is all about me. It's my rights, my belongings, my freedoms. I should be able to do whatever I want. But that's not a Christian mantra. The Christian mantra is sacrifice for each other's benefit. Prosperity doesn't have to come in the form of wealth. Prosperity for Christians comes in the form of God's approval for following his will in our life. Prosperity for following God's ways can also come in the form of peace and contentment, regardless of the situation or struggle that you're in. Trusting God brings an eternal hope that money can never buy, and you can take that to the bank. Well, so far our flight has been rather enjoyable. The skies have been clear, the air smooth, the flight attendants have rolled out the food cart. But that's all about to change as we look at Psalm 121, the next one on our list today. Psalm 129 can be subtitled, A Cry for Help to the Lord. Let's read it. A Song of Ascents. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But they have not gained a victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. 
but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like the grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Well, our plane has just encountered some clear air turbulence. See, clear air turbulence is a meteorological phenomena that occurs, and it can be quite severe at times. It happens as it, as it expresses, clear of any clouds, beautiful sunshine. Pilots can't see it with their eyes. The onboard radar can't detect it. It just comes at you out of the blue, and it can be severe. And as Psalm 129 implies, the psalmist, who is again anonymous, is in the midst of turbulent times in his life and the life of Israel. In fact, the imagery he uses to express the anguish felt over the subjugation Israel felt by her enemies is quite vivid. He uses imagery of a plowman plowing long furrows along his back. Now, here in Canada, we've gotten away a lot from the rural lifestyle and the farming lifestyle. But back in the psalmist days, this would have been a very vivid expression of what he was feeling. They would have understood the language that the psalmist was using to describe the oppression felt by Israel's enemies. Plowing a furrow in the ground tills the ground for the planting. It involves the plowshare being pulled through the ground as it slices into the soil and the ground and exposes the fresh earth. Plowing a furrow along one's back is a picture of great agony. The psalmist wasn't just expressing the oppression he felt. By his words, he's able to take the reader along with him in his anguish. This would not have been a joyful psalm to sing like the previous one was. But the psalmist is quick to point out that though the enemies oppressed him, they could not break him because God is righteous and he will save him and Israel. He goes on to describe his oppressors as having about as much chance of victory over him as grass growing on the rooftop providing a harvest for the reaper. Wind-blown seed that lands on a rooftop will sprout and it will start to grow, but it hasn't got any soil and nutrients to produce much of a crop. In the end, it amounts to little more than a spindly plant with little to harvest. So it will be with the enemies of Israel, says the psalmist. In the end, they will amount to nothing. Now, it was common for people at that time to greet each other with a blessing from the Lord. But here the psalmist is asking people around him not to ask God's blessing for the wicked. Today for us, when the world seems to be closing in around us, we have the example of Jesus Christ as the author of Hebrew states in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set beside him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, our, man, our pilots have managed to fly out of the clear air turbulence by finding a more favorable cruising altitude. But just as everything is settling down and people are getting comfortable in their seats again, there is a noticeable change in the sound of the engines. And after a while, the captain comes on and says, uh, we had a little problem with one of our engines and we had to shut it down. But don't worry, the plane can fly quite well on just the one remaining engine. Well, you can't say we're not getting our money's worth on this flight. The author of Psalm 130, our next psalm, is also not having a good day. 
Let's read this psalm, which is a psalm that we can subtitle A Prayer of Repentance. Psalm 130, a psalm, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I can guarantee you that on the rare occurrence, when a plane does lose one of its engines, that there will be a lot of praying happening on that flight, even by those who don't believe in God. Now, Psalm 130, which is again by an anonymous author, is an earnest cry to God to show his people mercy. I'm not sure if this psalm would have been sung immediately after Psalm 129, but it would make sense if it did. See, Psalm 129 speaks of the oppression of Israel by her enemies. And Psalm 130 is a cry to God to redeem Israel from her sin or iniquities. But what are the sins of the nation of Israel? One only has to look to history to hear what, or to see what the sins are of the nation of Israel when they were brought out of Egypt. Time and time again, Israel turned from God to follow idols, and time and time again, God allowed or even orchestrated other nations to punish the nation of Israel, to bring them back into a right relationship with God. Here the author recognizes the need to come to God with a repentant heart, before Israel could expect God to rescue them from her enemies. If Psalm 129 is stating the problem, Psalm 130 is stating the solution. When the psalmist stated, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, this is not just a flippant prayer. And when he goes on to say, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who can stand? Well, to keep a record of sins in this case does not mean to keep score of how well a person is doing on the good versus bad scale. Here it actually means to hold one accountable. In the English Standard Version, or ESV, which is a more literal translation, it actually translated as, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. In other words, who can stand if God dealt with sinners according to what they deserved? The psalmist knew Israel was guilty and had no defense, for who could stand against the Lord's judgment? But God, who is merciful, offers forgiveness for the repentant. Time and time again, God warned Israel what would happen if they strayed from God's commands. And time and time again, God offered forgiveness if they returned. The author put his hope in the word of God and his promise to Israel. And he encouraged the people of Israel to do the same. Forgiveness of sin by God can have a profound effect on people. At least for a time, forgiveness can bring about a healthy fear of the Lord that we looked at in our first psalm, Psalm 128. Now, when people see what they've been saved from, the fear of going back down that path is often enough to keep them from repeating that same sin over again. Unfortunately, Israel's memory was often far too short, and Israel did repeat those sins over and over again. Should you find yourself in a situation as the psalmist did, that is, the world seems to be pressing in around you, 
I encourage you to do as the psalmist did. That is, don't just identify and pray for what is grieving you, but search within yourself and pray for any unconfessed sin in your life. Tragedy doesn't always come your way because of unconfessed sin, but sometimes God will use circumstances around you to bring you back into a right relationship with him. We can rejoice today that the same offer of forgiveness of sin that God offered the Israelite in the psalmist days is offered to us when we come to Jesus with a repentant heart. And that same forgiveness applied to our life can have just as a profound effect. That is, it turns sinners into saints, people who will follow him in obedience. While our flight along this leg of our five-week journey to Jerusalem is about to come to an end, and none too soon, I mean, it's been an eventful flight, it started off smooth and joyful, followed by an encounter with clear air turbulence and a cry to God. Then the plane suffered an emergency caused by an engine failure, and a prayer of repentance occurred. Now it's time to prepare for landing, a landing which will call on all the pilots' skill because they're still only flying on one engine. Soon the plane will surrender itself to the ground as the pilots bring it in for a landing. And let's look at our last psalm for today, Psalm 131, which we can subtitle, Surrender to the Lord as a Child. A song of a sense of David. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quietened my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This psalm is attributed to David. Now, 75 of the 150 psalms that we have in the book of Psalms are attributed to David. 73 directly by name of authorship, and there's two more that are attributed to him by references in the New Testament. This is one of his shortest ones. At only 63 words long, it's more of a statement. David is stating that, Instead of chasing lofty endeavors, he's content to put his trust, a childlike trust, in the Lord. In the opening words of the psalm, David expresses that his heart is not proud, nor were his eyes haughty. See, pride and arrogance go hand in hand. They're partners. One won't be far from the other. And I believe the history of David's life bears out the truth of David's statement that he was neither proud nor arrogant. Even with David's shortcomings and failures, God still described David as his servant, a man after his own heart. And Paul, in recounting the history of Israel in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, says this about David. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He would do anything I want him to do. I don't believe David was being boastful with his remarks. Rather, he was setting the foundation for the charge he was going to give the nation of Israel. And the first one is the foundation. Verse 2 is the building that he placed upon that foundation. David was comparing his soul to that of a weaned child when he said, Like a weaned child is my soul within me. See, a newborn baby is reliant upon its mother for life. Babies are a wonderful joy. And everyone loves to hold a, new babe, a newborn baby until they get hungry, and they start to cry, and then they start to wail. Everybody hands that baby back to the mother rather quickly. If a three-month-old baby could actually talk, I don't think it would actually say something like, Hey, Mom, if you've got some time, do you think you could feed me? They have no patience. 
But David was saying, like a child no longer dependent on its mother's milk, so is my soul within me. David was testifying to his humility before God. No longer was his soul, that inward part of us that is who we are, no longer was his soul fixed inwardly on himself. David had found contentment, not in his own needs, but on the hope in the Lord, and he was encouraging Israel to do the same. We need to examine ourselves in the same way. Are we always looking inward to our own needs, so much so that we start asking God to bless our plans instead of looking to be a blessing for God's plan for our life? God knows our needs and our wants, and it's okay. In fact, God even expects us to be expressing them to him in prayer. The prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles expressing the hope that is found in patience. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 to 13 reads, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But if your wants become your priorities, then we start to have no room for our life, for God to lead us. We will look to serve ourselves instead of God. But if we heed David's words and put our hope in the Lord, then God can use us in his kingdom in spite of our shortcomings the way he'd use David. Well, our plane has made it in for a safe landing. And as they say, any landing you can walk away from is a good one. And any landing you can use the plane again is a great one. It's been an exciting trip with these four Psalms. I mean, in Psalm 128, we experienced the joy along with the pilgrims for those who follow God's ways. Psalm 129 was a cry for help to the Lord. Psalm 130 was a prayer of repentance. And in Psalm 131, David expressed his surrender as a child to the Lord and how he encouraged others to do the same. As the pilgrims' journey got closer to Jerusalem, I wonder, did the excitement and anticipation grow? What happens, or sorry, that happens to people when they fly as well. When they're getting closer to their destination, People inside start thinking about what they will do, who they will see. Okay, first they start thinking about how quickly can I get off the plane and did my luggage actually take the same flight that I did? But after that, they start thinking about, about what will I do and who will I see when I get there? There is a journey, a journey that we all take, every single one of us, and that's a journey towards eternity. This journey starts the day we are conceived. For some, sadly, it's a very short journey. But for others, it'll last 90 to 100 years. For a child, 100 years seems like forever. But those of us who start to age realize just how short a century is. Regardless of how long our journeys are through this life, for every single one of us, our journeys last a lifetime. As you sense your journey getting closer to its destination, do you feel yourself getting excited about who you will see and what you will do. For some, the destination still seems far off. It's as if their flight just left the ground. For others, they sense the plane has started its final descent into the airport. Regardless of where you are in your journey, are you excited of who will be waiting for you when you land? 
Are you looking with anticipation to what you'll be doing when you arrive? I'm speaking to Christians here now. Those who put their trust in the Lord, who put their hope and trust in the God who created them, who have come to Jesus Christ and confessed their sins with a repentant heart and who have a desire to follow him. For those who have done so, we should be very excited for what awaits us when we land, when we arrive at eternity. God will be waiting to welcome us. And after we spent a thousand years praising and worshiping him in person, we're just getting started. Just the thought of that should be enough to carry us through the toughest times that we may face here on earth. Most of us are not in a, in a hurry to arrive at our eternal destination, but we all should be excited about the prospect. For those who fear eternity and have never put their trust in God, if you're listening right now, I want to speak to you for a moment. What are you waiting for? Do you think the flight's going to be any better without God? Do you think you can really pilot your life better than the God who created you? Do you even know what's in store for you this afternoon, but yet you have your life all figured out, it's all planned? Well, I urge you to wake up before it's too late and put your trust in the Lord and His ways and see the blessings and the prosperity that awaits you. Cry out to the one, the only one, who can and will save you from an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as the Bible puts it. Great sorrow and great pain awaits for you at your destination unless you divert your flight path and choose God. I urge you, don't put it off another day. There may not be another one left. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we have to spend this morning. I thank you that we can come to a God who is alive, who is alive and who is involved in our lives, who wants to be involved in our lives. We're not an inconvenience to you. Though at times we disappoint you, though at times we stray from you, you've never stopped loving us. You've never stopped desiring to have that relationship with us. Oh Lord, help us. Remind us. Don't let us forget of that prospect that awaits for us in eternity when we put our trust in you. Let that be the hope that sends us off today on our own personal journeys as we journey through this life and our paths crisscross and for some they may cross again. And there'll come a time when uh, perhaps our paths will not cross. Lord, we don't know what our future holds, but we know who does hold our future. And what a joy, what a blessing, what a prosperity that is in our life. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We would love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at BibleFellowshipAssembly.ca. Thank you very much. See you next time.